Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. A little later in the show, we're going to talk with Satori Shakur, one of my favorite storytellers around town. She is having a Twisted Storytellers 1967 event where people who were around in the city at that time were going to tell stories about what it was like, what they saw, what they felt, what they remember. You're going to want to stay tuned to that segment and check that event out. We're also going to talk with Valerie Mercer, who's curator of an exhibit called Art of Rebellion, Black Art of the Civil Rights Movement at the DIA. Also a reflective piece on what happened 50 years ago this Sunday here in Detroit. So you'll want to stay tuned for that too. But up front, we talk all the time about transforming neighborhoods here in Detroit. But what does that actually look like for the people who live there? How do you improve neighborhoods that are plagued by crime and blight, disinvestment and unemployment without displacing the people who have lived there for a long time and have endured all of the ups and downs that we have seen in neighborhoods here in the city of Detroit? How do you put current residents and their needs first instead of last? Who's the redevelopment for? And is there a better, more ethical way to go about transforming Detroit neighborhoods than we have been doing so far. We start the show today with that question, and joining me to help frame it is Theester Gates Jr. He is founder and executive director of the Rebuild Foundation, an artist from Chicago who is working on this very question in his neighborhood, his neighborhood there in Chicago where he was born. Uh, also here is James Fegan, local entrepreneur who has been involved in the Place Lab project that's based in Chicago that deals with these issues. Theester and James, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much. Thanks. So, so when I ask that question, is there a more ethical way to go about transforming Detroit neighborhoods? I think, Theester, that gets right to the central uh, core of the work that you're doing in Chicago. Talk about that work and how the, the sort of eth- ethical considerations, the ethical dynamics sort of frame what you're trying to do. Sure. Thanks so much for, for having me. A couple things became really clear uh, when I moved to this neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. Uh-huh. wasn't the neighborhood I was exactly born in, uh-huh. but similar to the neighborhood I was uh, that I grew up in. I was ten blocks away from the University of Chicago, and that was far enough away so that the experience that somebody would have in Hyde Park was totally different from a black person in Grand Cross. Yeah. So this was like interesting first. <laughs> I couldn't afford to live in Hyde Park. I needed a home. But I had the intelligence and the pedigree that somebody working at the University of Chicago had. Yeah. So one kind of question is, what happens when a person with um, access to information lives in the wrong neighborhood? Right, sure. How can that access get distributed? And so I was kind of really interested in the ways in which a normal dude who, who went to school and had a little bit more access could share that information with others. Then the second part was, you know, where I lived was a little bit violent. Mm -hmm. And so there were like practical concerns that I had about um, what can I do to help manage uh, my, you know, my safety, the safety of the people who lived around me. And one way to do that was to, um, if there was an abandoned building, I bought it so that I could manage who might live in it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and so the the project started out extremely personal uh, before it became something that I would consider ethical. And, And the goal was to try to, be intentional about um, 
the conversations that happen in the neighborhood so that the folk, who, let's call them my neighbors, so sure. that my neighbors and I could develop a relationship. And if there was anything crazy happening in the neighborhood, that we could feel at least a bit more empowered. And I think so. So it started from something that was super personal and then it became something that maybe we, we thought we could share with others. Yeah, uh, th- there is that natural tension that arises when somebody of even a little bit of means mm. moves into a neighborhood that has uh, otherwise just been abandoned or, or forgotten. There, there's an automatic uh, change that, that takes place that threatens the status of the people who are already there. Um, uh, talk about how you have, uh, in those first mm-hmm. those first months, those first years, how did you sort of turn that around to say, well, I'm not here, I'm not here to change what it, the reality is uh, for you and your status here. I'm here to change things for you to yeah. make them better uh, for the, for the folks who live there. Well, I'll make some admissions. When I first moved to Dorchester. I was probably the brokest on the block, even though I had a job. (laughs) uh, My neighbors were super generous to me. And so I was kind of the young kid who didn't really know how to like, you know, cook chicken right. And, you know, my (laughs) greens weren't that good. And so some of it was about just kind of spending time with folk. And they were like, oh, we have we, we will have sympathy on you. Right. But what happened was that by over time, my economic condition and my social condition shifted but I decided to stay where I was living. Yeah. And so some of this is about, you know, what happens over the life, you know, over one's life. We're talking 11, 12 years sure. where you decide to stay in a place and then you go from like the poor kid that just finished grad school to somebody that has like a little bit more than they than they need for themselves. Uh-huh. And, and so the excitement has been um, figuring out over time with my neighbors and friends, how do we just make those conditions better for not just myself, but for the folk who live But for around. everybody else, yeah. yeah. Uh, James, you've been traveling back and forth to Chicago, uh, learning about what uh, the Astor is doing, watching sort of the effect that it has on, on the neighborhood there and trying to figure out, okay, how can we bring that back to Detroit? How can we make that matter here in Detroit? That's a story that lots of us, I think, are engaged in here in the city. I, I happen to be in the middle of a project in the neighborhood where I was born here in Detroit mm-hmm. and facing some of these same questions. What, what does it look like to try to revitalize an area and at the same time make sure it's for the people who are there, not to push them out? Uh, uh, talk about the things that you've learned from what you've seen in Chicago and what you feel like we are doing right and wrong with that here in the city of Detroit. <laughs> Big question. <laughs> yeah, and your show's only three hours long. We have all of it. Right. I think one thing that's important to touch on to kind of frame all of this before we go into some of the work that's being done now sure. is one of the things the Asher mentioned is that when he came up, quote unquote, he chose to stay in his neighborhood. Yeah, and you know, you have a neighborhood you're from. I have a neighborhood I'm from. A lot of folks like us in the city have neighborhoods we're from, mm-hmm. but we let mama's house go, mm-hmm. you know? And so what would Detroit look like? We talk about the rebellion and white flight and all of that. If the black middle class was courted or was retained or sure. chose to retain, sure. you know, how different would Mac and Bewick look if a lot of folks that were from Mac and Bewick 20, 30 years still ago lived over still there. lived over there? So here's where we are now, yeah. right? And so we're forced with this dynamic of, you know, who is coming back to the city, who is still in the city, 
whether they've chose to remain or haven't had the options to move. And we've got to respect, you know, know, so it's about like, you know, hierarchy, but not really hierarchy, but just understanding how we value everyone. Mm -hmm. And you have this challenge right now where certain neighborhoods, because there's been that mass disinvestment, if you want to call it that, or a lot of folks leaving mama's house, which is one part of it. Right. Everybody hasn't left. And so we have to be very careful when we start narratives around calling, you know, things like a blank slate or saying folks have left or just because property values may represent something on a sheet of paper. There's still folks in the neighborhood living, working, going to school who have stuck it out, who deserve and, 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 and ought to be part of not just the conversation, but the work that's being done. And you have a lot of great micro projects in Detroit that are really working at that. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got a lot of macro things too, but what what's really great about the engagement in Chicago, there's a group of 20 of us who've gone back over the past year to Chicago, seen the environment, had the opportunity to learn from some of the principles that the Astor laid out, capturing how he did his work and his practice. And it's been a chance to just think through strategically what it is that we're doing, how do we do it better together, uh, to really achieve that outcome of making sure that the folks in the neighborhood are valued as the neighborhood is revitalized. Give us a grade in Detroit right now on how how we're doing with that. I mean, as you point out, there are a lot of different projects taking hold, taking place. Uh, some have been in place for a really long time. Uh, are, are we are we as mindful as we should be about including people, including the folks who who have who have already been there? Well, I think the the biggest challenge with that grade is what we're it's now be on a curve. Right? <laughs> well, it's, it's nuanced because what we're now doing in Detroit is I like to say Detroit existed outside of capitalism for most of my lifetime. Yes, there was a major disinvestment, and it just wasn't economically viable from a capitalism perspective sure. to invest in Detroit. Now that that's returning, you know, we get an A, I guess, for the market forces now starting to value Detroit. Mm-hmm. But market forces aren't ethical. Yeah. Market forces aren't considered. Market can be cruel, of, right? Yeah. And so if, if we're going to grade ourselves based on the return of cruel capitalism to Detroit, then we're going to fail at all the other things that are a lot more important, like making sure that Miss Jenkins doesn't get put out of her house yeah. or that the kids who are there are part of the education solution conversation, not how to retain the young professionals who are living downtown that may want to move in the neighborhoods 10, 20 years from now. Yeah. So that's where the important work comes is understand there are people now who deserve help, investment, and and actually have ideas and capacity to do things in their own neighborhood. So while we're talking about you know 20% affordable as developers come into a community mm-hmm. what's also more important in my opinion is to talk about how we develop capacity within that community mm-hmm. so they can do their own projects right. and make them 100% community driven yeah uh, this is Detroit today on 1019 WDET I'm Stephen Henderson my guests are Theaster Gates Jr founder and executive director of Rebuild Foundation uh, also James Fegan local op- entrepreneur who has been involved in the Place Lab project based in Chicago uh, that the Astor Gates is uh, undergoing or undertaking, uh, and it deals with these issues of ethical redevelopment. That's what we're talking about. When we think about the things that are going on here in the city of Detroit that are changing Detroit, uh, how ethical are those changes? How much are those changes, including the people who have been here for a long time, or are we sort of on the edge of a real change in our community that pushes people out 
of neighborhoods that they have been in. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you think about redevelopment in Detroit, how ethical it looks to you, uh, how you think we might alter the things that we're doing to maybe include some more people. Give us a call at uh, 313-577-1019. That's the number on the phones, 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or you can hashtag us uh, on Twitter at Detroit Today, and we'll try to work your comments into the conversation. Uh, Tiesa, I want to read something that uh, is from your website, Place Lab, um, uh, in Chicago. Values, process, and aim are what distinguish ethical redevelopment from gentrification. Robust public life requires a belief in and devotion to place in advance of investment. While there is no single solution to the myriad challenges cities face, ethical redevelopment provides a framework for creative revitalization of communities. That creative revitalization is what I want to sort of focus in on there. You're an artist, uh, and and you have leveraged that skill, that uh, that part of you, that part of your being, to drive the redevelopment that you're mm. trying to do. Talk about how that relates to the ethical side of it. I think the idea of using art, for mm-hmm. instance, to revitalize uh, an, an area does drive it more toward the ethical dynamic. Sure. There, there are two things that feel really important inside of art. Um, one is that there are no rules. Mm-hmm. The second is that the thing that drives you is much more in, internally based than it is externally based. So if we were talking about, say, you know, you guys talked about capitalism, uh, money is the truth of how cities are built. Mm-hmm. That's why people are invested in building, even though uh, lots of people here in Detroit and also in Chicago feel very strongly about the buildings that they live in their strong feelings is only one part of how cities get built. Mm -hmm. Cities get built because there's bricks and mortar and there's federal and local resources that help to drive a developer's interest. So I think that for me, starting with art, it was like, how can I make projects that are, that were first the, the sub, the city was the subject in my artistic practice. Mm -hmm. Space was the subject. And I think I went from having space as the subject inside of a museum to space being the subject of my life right. and wanting to kind of grow that uh, possibility beyond, say, beyond the realm of the museum without neglecting the, the museum. So I, I'm still a practicing artist and, and I do that. But I have to admit that there's a way in which, um, say, big problems and, and the problem of blackness, black space, economies in relationship to change is super exciting and important to mm-hmm, me, mm-hmm. right? The ethical part gets interesting, which is there are people who know how to build and people who, who know how to build are often led to build because of money, right? right. And then there are people who need things built. <laughs> right. And people who need things built are often led because they feel like, I believe that this is an important building and I, I went to church in this building and it should be saved. And so I think that part of this is about how do you get the folk who know how to build more aligned with the people who need things built so that something really special might happen that couldn't happen with one group or the other. Sure. Now, sure. I'm making this uh, simple, but I think that part of the work that uh, Place Lab hopes to do and ethical redevelopment aspires to is to try to create a situation where those folk 
come together. Yeah. And and I got to give a shout out to my team, um, the University of Chicago and Place Lab, who are the real drivers of this work. You know, there's like nine or ten of us who spend, you know, all day, every day kind of thinking about how do we get more information out to this cohort around the country um, uh, that we believe in and that supports us? And how do we get more and more people in Chicago and on the ground with information so that they can make better decisions about the role that they play in the ways that their cities are changing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Anthony in East Point. Anthony, welcome to Detroit. Today. Hello. Hey. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Go ahead. What I do is <clears throat> every year at the county auctions, I buy three or four properties. I renovate them, and I either rent them or sell them on land contract to uh -huh. people who can't afford to leave the city but want a nice house. Uh -huh. So um, that, that that's what I do. Mm. And because it's, it's disturbing that a lot of these properties are being bought by investors and speculators, sure. and they're just sitting there. And they're just waiting for the time is right to dump these properties on people who are going to move into the city temporarily. Right, right. You know, it's just... it's, it's, these people have been there their whole lives. And to force them out, you know, we need to start gentrifying our own neighborhood. Yeah. So, Anthony, I, I, I want to ask you a question. Um, some people would say, well, it's, it's, not, it's not profitable enough to do what you're doing, right? To come into a neighborhood buy up uh, a house that, that has been left abandoned or that maybe somebody's even leaving, living in, you know, invest the money to fix it up and then rent it at an affordable rate or sell it for less than what you might get if you sat on it for five or five or 10 years. Talk about how you make that work, though, for you. I mean, obviously, you're not in this uh, to, to lose money, uh, but but talk about how you balance that idea of being needing to be profitable uh, against doing the right thing. Okay, this is what it is. When I first started in 2013, I bought three properties for $10,000. It took me $600 to paint one, $2,000 <laughs> to put plumbing in another one, and I rent these houses for seven fifty a month. Okay. So I took $10,000, bought three properties, put $2,600 into them, mm -hmm. and I'm renting them for $750 a month. So you're not losing out that much. <laughs> I'm not losing anything because I own the houses free and clear. Right, right, yeah. You know, uh, I've already made my money back within the same right, year. Right, I, I, I asked you that just to try to demonstrate that this is not asking people to give up on the idea of, of profit or, or to say that I have to be a charity. To, to do the right thing, that there is a balance that can be struck there uh, that's really important. So, Anthony, thank you very much for uh, uh, thank you very much for the call and for those comments. Let's go to Sean in Detroit. Sean, welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, thank you. I'm yeah. a big fan of your show, Stephen. Oh, thank you. And, Appreciate um, that. I just want to I, – I, this is an interesting subject because I'm currently rehabbing a house, uh -huh. uh, for me anyway, and it's on the – margin of a uh, neighborhood that, you know, you've seen some uh, significant increase. So my kind of take on it is, I, I just want to say, first of all, I'm very cognizant of what you're talking about when I went, into the, went into the neighborhood. And, you know, I, I'm the newbie. I, I kind of went in, met my neighbors, um, made sure I had good relationships with them, you know, shook hands, exchanged phone numbers. 
and kind of felt a lot better about that. Yeah. But kind of in the long term, as I see people more on the street, you know, maybe a single mom with a couple kids, a few doors down, I, I look at it like, like this. I'm not coming in there. I, I'm going to put it, you know, for me anyway, significant amount of investment in the house. I'm not coming in and I'm not going to be the reason the street changes. It's in my opinion, it's going to happen regardless. Yeah. So I'm jumping and I'm investing. Like I'm looking at this through the eyes of an investor. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. You know, I do have ethics, sure. ethical considerations. So, so Sean, so is it's this going to happen? And, and, and my view is this, how is the person, people on the street, what mechanisms are in place to make sure that I'm going to benefit from it. Whoever comes after me is going to benefit from it. How are they going to benefit? What are what mechanisms are in place? Right. So when let's say there's difficulty so, paying, paying a water bill or tax bill, yeah, yeah, something can be done to make sure that when it does happen, now they have they're there for the upside. They were there for the funeral. Right. They should be there for the wedding. Yeah, Sean. Sean, quickly. The house is going to go up quickly. Is this a house you're going to live in, or is this just an investment for you? Right now, uh, it's purely an investment. Okay. My plan is to rent it or possibly sell it. Okay. I don't have a very specific plan, and I'm fairly um, – there's not a lot um, of – it's not like there's a flurry of people doing what I'm doing on the street yeah. yet. So, so, I, so like I want to give – yeah, uh, thank you very much for the call and, and for sharing that story, Sean. I really appreciate it. I want to give the Astrogates a, a, a chance to respond to what you're talking about. That is – the, the dilemma I think a lot of people face, which is, all right, I want to do this because I think it will help raise the overall economic viability of the neighborhood. Sure. But as an outsider, I'm already sort of suspect, right, uh, that, that, that I'm here to make money and not, not, not help people. Yeah. He's sort of caught in that, in that conundrum, I guess. So if we, if we think about both caller number one and caller number two uh-huh. as, as two shades of ethics yeah right that i think on uh, what's what's hardening about caller number one was that there was a set of things that a local brother could do to feel empowered um by these buildings which would keep them from being demolished and then create opportunity for folk who he feel are important uh-huh. then there's caller number two um i heard a canadian accent yes. you know <laughs> he's he's obviously kind of interested in the future and the future is about like a certain kind of new market. Mm-hmm. But I think that caller numbers two point is exactly right. There are not certain mechanisms in place to ensure that the person who lives there today will always live there. But there are lots of mechanisms in place that ensure that people who might want to come in the future might have an opportunity. Right. And so part of this is what are we willing to do collectively to ensure that new kinds of mechanisms exist? And I think that in some ways, Place Lab was was an attempt at well, let's workshop what those mechanisms are. And and one of the biggest mechanisms was just how do we get more information into the hands of normal people, of the people who are so that are we there. say, look, uh, there's a county auction. It happens three times a year. Uh, it means you will have to raise twenty five hundred dollars. It might take you a couple years to do it. But if you could walk into the county with $2,500 and $600 for paint, you might be able to have a house that you own. That's right. right? That's right. And that's, that's information as power. Yeah. James, go ahead. So there's a couple of different layers of this. One of the, um, 
one of the programs that does exist is the the home program that the mayor's office recently oh, rolled yeah, out, yeah, where folks sure. are going through, you know, triaging their back taxes yeah. tax and being allowed to get deeds to their home. So, but keeping people see, in their house, right? But you know, if you talk about the rate at which programs are emerging, and and then it's like, how do programs come back to market? So, come back to the comes back to this question of understanding that as the market returns it's going to return at a rate that's quicker than the programs sure. and the programs alone can't be the end solution so whether it's art or it's entrepreneurship you know with some of the programs i work on like motor city matching the ideas working to strengthen neighborhood businesses so that they can create jobs within those neighborhoods and so the the, the solution has to be a balance of intelligent policy but also economic empowerment for the folks within the community so for example the woman he mentioned you know, on his the second call of the woman on the block with the kids, uh-huh. you know, part of his good deed is stabilizing that home. Right. Because we know a lot of homes oftentimes just get taken over by folks who don't have the concern of the community at heart. Yeah. So there's a form of stabilization there, which then allows, you know, if it makes her feel that much safer mm-hmm. to stay in that neighborhood and maybe those kids get summer jobs at a business that, on the corner, and then they get involved in programs and they get their own business going. Some of it's through the market starting to work for the folks there as well. Yeah. Okay, Theaster Gates Jr. and James Fegan, thank you both for being here on Detroit Today. We're going to have you guys back because this was a great segment. We could have talked about this for hours, right? Good. Um, all right. Uh, thanks again for being here. Up next, Secret Society of Twisted Storytellers is asking people to share their stories about the summer of 1967 in Detroit tomorrow at the Charles H. Wright. We're going to hear from host Satori Shakur next. Thank you.